Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 127, recorded June 6th, 2013. This will be our 63rd 90s episode, and today we're covering uh, Original Series Volume 2 by DC Comics, issues 67 through 69. Right, so we'll be wrapping up a four-parter, so the last two of a four-parter, and we'll be beginning uh, another a multi-part story arc. Right. So this one continues where we left off way back in episode 120. So yeah. hopefully you all remembered where that cliffhanger left off. If not, uh, there'll be a little recap here in a minute. Yeah, which will be helpful. It's been a while. Yeah, I was glad that uh, they had the little recap at the beginning of the issue, personally myself, because I, I had kind of forgotten some of the 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 smaller subplots from those first uh, few issues, right? So, anyways, uh, they're good. Yeah, it's been a little while since we've been back with the original uh, characters. So, right. Well, we I did have the original series specials, and then we had the whole countdown in the movie, and it's it's been a it's been a wild couple of weeks. Wild, wild. Shall we? <laughs> Alright, so yeah, let's let's get into these issues. Um, I have the honor of doing the first one. This is uh, issue 67. It is entitled Rivals Part 2. And its cover date is January of 1995. The writer is Howard Weinstein. Penciler is Thomas Derenick. Inker is Arnie Starr. Letterer, Bob Panaha. Colorist, David Graff. And editor is Margaret Clark. So the cover has a caption, and it reads, Quality of Mercy. So the picture shows Kirk standing in a turbo lift or small room of some sort. His face looks very intense as he speaks into his communicator with gritted teeth. And he's holding up a unconscious male in Vulcan robes. Perhaps Spock, perhaps somebody else. So the story starts off with a convenient and quick recap of the last several issues. So, as we all know, Kirk saved Ambassador Stan's daughter as she fled the planet Narigi. He then pleaded with the Narigi leaders to go easy on the girl and her friend. Uh, this did not go over very well with the negotiations that Stan had been working on for so long. And the negotiations between the Naragi and the Federation are actually over, and it now looks like the Naragi will align themselves with the Romulans. And if you don't remember, it was for a big area of space that will allow whichever group, the Romulans or the Federation, easy passage to another sector of space. That's why they want to be friends with the Naragi. So the actual story starts off in Stan's home. He is reminding us and Kirk of, of those events. Before he can complete his chastising of Kirk and his bumbling, he grabs his chest and falls to the floor. 
Spock is there, and he orders for McCoy to beam down for a medical emergency. When McCoy arrives, uh, we see that Stan is actually doing better now, and he's sitting in a chair on his own. Stan refuses to allow McCoy to beam him up to the ship for a full checkup. Seeing that McCoy is a very stubborn person, Stan does allow McCoy to scan him with his tricorder, and he tries to get a little rest due to the doctor's orders. While he is resting, Stan's wife, Sephora, has a conversation with Kirk and Spock. She tells the two that Stan was never a very attentive father, and that she thinks that maybe he only married her so that she would take care of Teresa's daughter after Tepring left him. The young girl always rebelled against her stepmother. Uh, trying to make amends between Therese and her mother, uh, Sephora once went and visited Tepring and asked her to visit her daughter. Tepring refused. Sephora also fears that Therese may be poisoning Stan. Even though Sephora is the only one who prepares his food, but she does point out that it's an ancient Vulcan custom, and Therese is very fond of the pre-Reformation customs that the Vulcans had. Kirk excuses himself, stating that he needs to check on McCoy. Once alone, Sephora asks Spock to check up on Therese. She thinks that Therese may open up to him since he is a neutral party. Later, Spock pays the young woman a visit. Therese asks right away if her stepmother sent him. He admits that she did. Therese tells him about the injustice she has seen while they were here, and how the Naragi treat the other species of their system, uh, similar to how they treated her friend, who is still being captive and awaiting punishment from stealing the ship several issues ago. She finishes the conversation by implying that Sephora herself may be the one poisoning Stan. Later, on the Enterprise, McCoy, Spock, and Kirk compare notes. McCoy cannot confirm poisoning. He also speculates that he does not think that it is very likely that Therese is the one doing the poisoning. She seems like a teenager wanting to leave, not one wanting to get rid of her father forever. In the Naragi prison... Dalen, who is the friend of Therese, is being released. The order came in through the computer and everything checks out. When he exits the prison, not understanding the reason for his good fortune, he is surprised to find Therese there waiting for him. She admits that she hacked into the system and arranged his release. They start to make their plans on leaving the planet. This time, they're going to take the nice and quiet route. Stan and Kirk make an attempt to plead the Federation's case one last time with the leadership. The leader, whose name is Taxifa, is not interested in their pleas. But the conversation is cut short when Stan collapses again. Kirk orders two to beam up directly medical bay. Dalen and Therese disguise themselves and book passage to Dalen's homeworld. A much larger Guy smacks Therese across the face when they're boarding the ship, and he says that the alien witch needs to go back to her own kind. Undeterred, they still board the craft. 
McCoy is now able to perform a full scan on Stan and informs Kirk and Sapora at the same time of his findings. It seems that Stan is not being poisoned after all, but he is very sick and he will probably die within the next few days. To be continued. Mm-hmm. Might not be, be poisoned, but he's got something pretty nasty. Yeah, they they go into it more in the next issue as to what exactly he has. Right now it's supposed to be a mystery. Yes, well. So, what do you think? Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's fine. You know, um, this is what themes. Um, political intrigue, um, diplomatic challenges, uh, dysfunctional family, rebellious youth... And I don't know that I am incredibly overly um, entertained by any of those themes, but it's an okay episode. Yeah, for me, the the political and the diplomatic stuff is not interesting at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just not. And Stan, Stan dying and and trying to make a you know a name for himself before he dies. Uh, for his family and for himself, that's kind of interesting. And the whole family dynamic, where the you know the stepmother is trying to be you know basically a loving parent to a daughter that was basically abandoned by her mother, that's interesting too. But but that's not the focus of the issue, right? Or or it is. And well, then, it is. Yeah. I mean, this it, one it is. The next one it's kind of not. So you know, it's good to have a break from space battles and. You know, physical conflict. You know, um, it's just uh, just a little soap opery, and it's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. A little break from from the action, right? I like I like this story. I just, you know, I don't. You know, I told I said it in the last issue that Sapora's character is very not Vulcan. She's she seems emotional. She doesn't look like the traditional Vulcan. You know, she just has all these attributes that make you not buy that she's a Vulcan. I mean, because she seems like a very loving parent. She's really trying to do the best for this this kid that's not her kid, but it's yeah. she's raising it as if she was. Trying to. Um, whereas, you know, I'm used to seeing Vulcans all cold and logical, almost like the way they depict Dupring, where, mm. you know, if... Uh, well... I mean, even though they kind of depict Dupring too far on the other side where she's not even taking responsibility for the child at all. Right, but you remember. I mean, I think we all remember and enjoyed a mock time. But really, at the end of a mock time, didn't you think to pring U B I T C H Oh man You are making a big mistake, girl. And you are a manipulative little hussy, you are. I mean, I I certainly didn't like the character. I mean, I thought she was kind of smart, but manipulative <laughs> and just wanting to get what she wants, and she really didn't care who she stepped on. And as we see in this issue and later issues, when uh, Stan and Spock have a little man-to-man time, um, T'Pring was just not a, just a poisonous woman. She really was, which yeah. is not very Vulcan. Well, no, but... Well, okay, so you're stereotyping, 
which is completely understandable because this is all made up stuff. Right. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's hard to stereotype people in a lot of cases. I mean, there's some things we all do, but there's a broad variety of human behavior. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe we just, just because we get exposed to Sarek and Spock and not many other Vulcans, who knows? But So you think... So you don't think she's out of character? Well, no. I mean, I, I think she is atypical. I do agree with you. I think she's an atypical character for the typical Vulcan characters we get exposed to in these stories. Right. I do agree. Okay. She She's heavy. I, mean, this, I think this is the first time I've ever seen a jowly, heavy Vulcan. It is. Um... And 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 I at least at the beginning issues I thought she had an agenda going so I wasn't buying her as the the sweet mother although she could have been I right. uh, but as this goes on I mean there there seems to be less and less evidence of there being a negative side to her but you know there is that whole poisoning thing at this point which is very right. interesting that <laughs> uh you know that that that's being thrown out there. In both directions, right? Yeah. So I, I, I was, I was still buying that one of these was not what they seemed to be. Right. Yeah. Right. Now I agree I with agree. you. And, and again, I thought that all these little hints, you know, as to her stories and the way she acts and things were all evidence that maybe she wasn't who she was saying she was. Right. You know, because she shows her like loving on this little dog. You know, where I know that Vulcans. You know, have pets or whatever, but I don't see them. I can't see you know Spock picking picking up his little you know pet shellac or whatever she it like is, and, it. and you know cuddling his face into it like she is with this little pig dog thing. Well, wasn't that a huge thing? I mean, the the shellac wasn't it huge? Doesn't start off huge. He's a little puppy at first, or oh, cub. Okay. Uh, <laughs> again, in the cartoon series, and also uh, Enterprise. They're in Enterprise too. Uh, Captain Full Archer Rose. Enterprise? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't remember that. When uh, he and T'Pol go to Vulcan. Uh, how cute. How cute. Anyways. Right. Um, so what do you think? Is there... Is, is Tiaris... Got some kind of little under the under the radar thing for Spock or what? At is it this issue that? No, I no think it's, it's not the this next issue. issue, right? But when they do have the discussion and Spock is in the the teenager's room, what's the deal with that book she's got? So there well, there, there there's a book sitting there on her bed or something, a bunch of books, mm-hmm. and. And Spock is looking at one of them, and it's like a two-page spread of athletic-looking, uh, almost gladiatorial, I assume historical, uh, visages of of Vulcan athlete, warrior, something like that going. And I'm sorry, but they all look, most all of them look like Spock, only significantly more, uh, you know, muscular. I think that's very racist, Ken. That you think that all Vulcans look alike. No, uh, look at the look at the drawing. I'm looking at it. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> look at the drawing. I mean, what? I mean, 
And by the way, there are times when Stan is drawn looking a lot like Spock too. And I, and and the original actor that played Stan in Amok Time, I mean, sure, to some degree, a lot of the Vulcans uh, have similar characteristics, but in some scenes, they look extremely close. Right. And in other scenes, they don't. When you really good look, look at their face, I mean, Stan does not look like Spock, but there are some scenes he does look quite a bit. Right. Well, in regards to the um, the book, I mean, yes, I agree that a lot of them, you know, have the traditional Spock bangs, <laughs> and <laughs> and oh, I don't know, Spock's face. <laughs> they do look like they could have, you know, been cut out of a, you know, issue of Gold Key with uh, Spock in gladiatorial robes and <laughs> swords and things. <laughs> But uh, I don't. I think that's just supposed to be a historical document of some sort of their more barbaric times. I I would agree that she's reading about. However, they still most of them look like Spock. But yes, they they it's reminded they, me a lot of Gold Key covers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it does kind of look like uh, like Roman kind of outfits or something like that. Right. Anyway, I just thought I'd bring it up. Very good point. We'll talk more in the next issue about if there was something there. Right, right. Yeah, and really, other than that, I don't have any comments on this one. Except no. to say, in general, the artwork is good. You yeah. Know, you know, not, not you know, overly phenomenal, but, but good. Right. I see no problem with it. Still not the biggest fan of the aliens. Uh, I mean, Dalen looks okay. You know, kind of a yeah. horse face looking. Yeah. But the, the other the aliens... Mars, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, that the Mars look a little reptin- reptilian, definitely, right. but kind of weird reptilian. And I've got some comments towards the end. Yeah, they kind of they kind of lack definition, so it just looks like a, a vague attempt to try to draw an alien or a, yeah. a, a, a reptile. Right, a reptile alien in a humanoid form. Right. So, um, let's see. Do I have any more? Well, uh, my last note is, uh, since when does McCoy can't detect something with a medical tricorder? (laughs) That seemed like a a depowering of his device. I mean, I know that you sometimes, you know, it's convenient to have somebody up on the ship, you know, doing the little leg leg thing that they he often had people do for exercise or whatever. (laughs) Oh. Which I always thought was incredibly ridiculous why you had that in your medical bay, but okay. Yeah. Well, you mean the the, the, the two little, like, shoe boxes that came out of the ground right. and that you push on yes, with your while, feet? Yes, while you're laying on the medical uh, bed. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but anyway, so, okay, I buy that you can get a better reading when you're up on the ship, but they've always been able to detect poison or any other type of ailments by just waving the medical tricorder so it, it did seem odd that well, they make such a big deal on this issue that he can't figure anything out unless he can get him up to the ship yeah well I agree but that comes under the general heading is technology depicted technology will only be as good as the current storyline requires it to be <laughs> and conversely as bad as the current storyline requires it to be case in point transporters how often do transporters 
not stinking work because you need to leave the landing party isolated for a while. Or or sensors. This is analogous to the tricorder. Right. If you don't want the sensors to be good enough to find somebody for a while, oh, ion storm, I don't know. Just can't do it. <laughs> and so here we go with the tricorder. Yep. Yep. All right, that's it. That's my last comment. Cool. Well, let's find out how this thrill-packed ride ends, shall we? In issue number 68, Rivals, the Conclusion. This one has a published date of February 1995. Writer is Howard Weinstein. Artist, Thomas Derenick. Inker, Arnie Starr. Colorist, David Graff. Letterer, Bob Pinaha. And editor, Margaret Clark. The cover shows Spock and a mysterious dark-haired woman in a hallway. She is behind Spock, who is crouched down and firing his phaser at an unseen assailant. On the ground in front of Spock, face down, is a humanoid body. Red text towards the top reads, Dangerous Promises. Kirk records his log summarizing the worsening situation he and the crew find themselves in. Ambassador Stan is suffering from an unknown illness that might take his life in a matter of days if McCoy can't save him. Stan's daughter, Tiaris, has been reported missing. The treaty Stan has been working on so hard with the Naragai leader, Taxifa, is likely to be cancelled. Kirk is speaking over subspace to a very angry Admiral Cartwright who explains why the treaty and the free passage it would bring with it is so important to counter Romulan influence in the area. He tells Kirk to revive that treaty no matter what it takes in a very loud and irritated voice. In sickbay, Stan is awake and seated on an examination table. He is telling McCoy and Spock about his choice to focus his remaining days on accomplishing the treaty before his terminal illness of Seragion pneumotoxia takes his life. Stan goes on to explain how T'Pring's choice of him over Spock motivated him to achieve great things to justify her choice. But he was not in Starfleet. He had no heroic exploits to call attention to his achievements. Then Spock died and was resurrected. How can you compete with that? And then Spock makes the comment that he really never had to. McCoy tries to administer a hypo to Stan, but he objects and holds McCoy's arm that holds the hypo. He does not want to be treated. Meanwhile, on a transport bound for Guy, Tiaris and Dalen are talking about the incident in the transport terminal building and whether Tiaris has any second thoughts. She says she does not verbally to Dalen, but her thoughts are fraught with second thoughts. In the Enterprise sickbay, the discussion between Stan and Spock continues. Stan asks if Spock ever got over to Pring. Spock does not say, but Stan admits that he never did. He said from the start their union was doomed. He knew he was being compared to a legend and knew at every turn that he would come up short. When T'Pring chose Kirk to be her champion, it was an admission that he could not defeat Spock in combat. As Spock turns 
to go. Stan calls out saying Spock was correct. Having was not as pleasing as wanting, after all. Later, Kirk and Stan beam down to the planet to make a last-ditch effort to resurrect the treaty. Spock gave his word to Sapora that he would find Tiaris, and he sets to that task with the aid of Uhura. They discover by researching Naragai criminal justice records that Dalen has been released from prison. Spock, judging that justice adjunct Vicota was bent on prosecuting Dalen, was also extremely unlikely to release him. Spock reasoned that Tiaris used her computer hacking talent to secure Dalen's release. After taking yet another illegal action, Spock concluded that they would try to get off of Nara. Seeing no new ships that were reported as being stolen yesterday, Spock checks the scheduled public transports from Nara to Guy. Since only one was scheduled, he concluded that that is where he would find Tiaris. Later in civilian clothes, and over McCoy's objections, Spock leaves for Guy in a shuttlecraft. McCoy is called to Nara on a medical emergency. It is Stan again, and this time there is nothing more McCoy can do. Stan dies of his affliction. Kirk says he will keep his appointment with Taxafa to make one final appeal to save the treaty. Meanwhile on Guy, the locals are proving to be xenophobic thugs. They want Tiaris off their world and are quite happy to beat her to convince her to leave. Perhaps even to kill her and Dalen. After running from several street gangs, they find themselves at the end of an alley. Just when it looks like the group of six ruffians are about to have their way, Spock transports down phaser in hand. He convinces the ruffians to find their amusements elsewhere. Despite Spock saving their lives, Tiaris tells Spock to bug off. She has no wish to be retrieved and taken back to her father. Spock tells her he is there at the request of her stepmother. Spock secures lodging for, for he and Tiaris for the night. Dalen goes to his family's home, but promises to return in the morning. Spock and Tiaris speak more in the lodge. Spock says it is her choice whether she accompanies him back to Nara. It is her choice to stay or go. The discussion continues during which Spock bestows his wisdom and convinces her that life is a constant journey with the correct path never obvious and seldom direct. The next morning the Guy authorities break into their room, guns drawn. Tiaris is accused of a ritual murder that happened last night. An old man says he witnessed her doing it. Her! Spock states impossible, since she was with him all night. They tell him his word is not good enough. Dalen does not say a word. Seeing no choice, Spock draws his phaser and offers an alternative to the whole crowd being stunned into unconsciousness. Spock says he and the girl will leave immediately, since they are obviously not wanted. The cop says, okay, and they leave, without Dalen. What a wimp. Meanwhile on Nara, Kirk is meeting with Taxafa, his final attempt at a treaty f fall on deaf ears. 
However, when Taxifa asks him why he is not playing the threat card that the Romulans will likely subjugate them without the Federation's aid, Kirk says that is the difference. The Romulans take what they want in the end. The Federation accepts not getting what they want and respecting self-determination. Kirk says they are welcome to learn the difference firsthand. The Enterprise leaves Nara without a treaty, but hopefully the seeds of doubt may bear fruit later. They set course for Vulcan, where they will return Ambassador Stan's body and his wife and daughter to their home. On the way, Sapora and Tiaris talk about the past and the future. Tiaris says she has asked Captain Spock to sponsor her application to Starfleet Academy. She says hopefully that she may have found her path. The end. Oh. She hmm? found her way. Maybe. To be proven. <laughs> She's got, she actually has to demonstrate some restraint and responsibility. She'll do it. I think she will. I think she just needed the, the right kind of nudge in the right direction. And to actually feel useful. Right. Wasn't that the same plot line they used with young Savick? Well, Spock's good at this. <laughs> right. I just saw he's, a lot of Savick. He's, he's, he's a good recruiter, right. basically. But, yeah. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, no, no, no. You know, uh, uh, you know, er, er, she's got multiple problems, but obviously one is she lacks direction. She needs something to funnel her energies into, and she's not getting it in her current life being the... Uh, the daughter of an ambassador traipsing off to alien worlds. So, well, she she wouldn't be doing that anymore, anyways. Mm, true. With Stan's passing. Yeah. And how to? I I felt uh, I felt sorry for the mother. Mm-hmm. Because you know there she is. Uh, she turned out to be really a good person. Yep. She she didn't appear to have an agenda in the end, and she was making overtures for them to to still uh have a relationship and be together on on Vulcan. And she said and then uh Tiaris says, Uh yeah, I'm leaving. I'm going to Starfleet <laughs> Academy. Later. So it's like, oh wow, your 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 husband's dead, your stepdaughter's he- you know, heading off world, and I hope you've got some relatives there <laughs> in Vulcan still. <laughs> because otherwise you're gonna be uh, you and your dog are gonna be about it. Yeah. Yeah, that I thought that was that was sad. Yeah. But but they don't have emotions, so there's no reason to be sad. Oh, they have emotions. They just choose not to exercise them. Yeah, I never I never bought all of that. <laughs> you either have them or you don't. No, I'm just kidding. Well, and back in the old show, that's the way it was. Right, because then right. they almost I mean, it... killed Spock one time because they were going to make him cry. Some some alien was forcing emotion onto people, and he started to cry. And Kirk's like, "You'll kill him!" <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. Oh god, that's that seemed dumb. <laughs> but then, but then later it was revisionism, right? And it turns out, oh well, Spock always had emotions. He just chose not to exercise them. And in fact, as he got older. He did choose to uh, emote at times. 
Yeah, dying and coming back, that uh that does it for you. That that could that, do that it. Mellows you out a little bit. Yeah. However, in the new movie, I thought um Quinto was unexpectedly emotional with that uh, with the Spock character. Right. Well, his, his Spock's always been kind of emotional. Yeah, more so anyway. Another revisionism. Right. So I had no problem when he yelled out, <laughs> You know, I both liked that and didn't like it. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I, 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 I thought on the... I, we've said this before in other episodes, but in some ways I love in that scene where they, they reuse some of the old uh, lines, but, you know, you know they, they mixed them up, you know, who was saying them. Because, of course, people are on the other side of the transparent wall. Uh, and, and the thrill-packed end, but uh, I thought uh, I thought that particular one <laughs> it's like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna decide to like it, but it's like right. No, I'm with you. Okay, but what about the best part of the book? The uh, did you ever get over to Pring? I loved it. Oh. No, not that part. That's nothing. No. That's the best part. No, the, the, the tech war ad. The full-page <laughs> tech war ad. The chat as a as a yeah. youngish man and Greg Avagon, you know, BJ and the chat. That was great. Okay. Don't you remember that show? Well, I oh. remember it being on. I never watched it. Well, I don't I really don't remember anything about it myself. And by the way, you do remember BJ and the Bear, Greg Avagon? I that. know the name. I never watched an episode of that either. Well, you're you're very lucky because I don't think they'll ever play it again because it sucked. But <laughs> you kind of have to know that for my joke to work. But oh well. <laughs> so, uh, Tech War that was a book series that was written by Shatner, right? And it spawned off into a couple of comic book miniseries before it got its own TV show, right? Yeah, I might believe you're right about that. But I'll I never, be damned if I, I never saw it. I always eyeballed those books, you know, because when you first, when you go to the, you know, the Star Trek book section, and you see Tech War, and it kind of looks like Trek War, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. William Shatner, and then you're like, oh, wait, this is something else. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah, stick exactly. with the, uh, you know, buying Strangers in the Sky and not whatever Tech War yeah. uh, book was out there. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know much about the series, other than who authored it. You think he actually wrote all of it, or was it kind of a oh. ghostwriter thing, kind of like uh, oh. his uh, Shatner verse stuff? I think, I think, I think the Shat got. Uh, what, what, what's the what's the husband and wife team? Uh, Judith and Garfield's Reeves. Le- there you go. I, I can see it now. Um, the Shat meets with him for the first time. Says, "I've got an idea." for a book series and there's going to be this and that and the other thing and what do you think and then they go off to write it and then take out all the lame stuff or at least as much <laughs> they get away with and then Shatner puts his name on it Skull oh. that's well, their what I name see. was on it too well I know their name was on it too but I'm just saying I mean yes William Shatner and uh, you know Stevens and yeah, this other guy 
According to Wikipedia, Tech War is a, a series of science fiction novels created by William Shatner and ghostwritten by science fiction author Ron Golart. Oh, ghostwritten. Well, right. um, so that makes it sound like Shad had very little to do with it other than the name. Possibly. Mm. It looks like uh, this gentleman wrote a lot of Flash Gordon stuff in the 60s and 70s. Uh, oh, interesting. Some Phantom stuff. Vampirella. Oh, I like Vampirella. Oh, he wrote an uh, Incredible Hulk novel. Oh, well, there you go. So the novels gave rise to a comic book series video game, and later TV movies and series, both featuring both of the latter featuring Shatner. Hmm. Movies, you say? Huh. TV movies. TV huh. movies. Interesting. So I wonder how easy is it is to find this on Blu-ray. Uh, I'm sure impossible. <laughs> exactly. Okay. I just thought I wondered. All just right. Just wondered. Uh, so, let's see. Let's see. Uh, you know what I thought when I, you know, started reading this, and the second page is a giant picture of uh, Cisco's dad, and I'm like, what is ah! Cisco's dad doing here? <laughs> <laughs> I always love, you know, that Brock Peters plays both Admiral Cartwright and Cisco's right. father. Right. Um, I did not know until last night that Brock Peters passed away in 2005. Oh, or 2006. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know I. that he'd passed away. Hmm. So well, that's too bad. I mean, I've I've seen him pop up in a lot of things on and off over the years. Right. You know, one one of those actors that you know you see him popping up in um, you know supporting roles, mm -hmm. and uh, never quite getting that star vehicle. Right. Yeah, because he had like a little bit part in like To Kill a Mockingbird, things like that. Oh. I first became aware of him uh, in a radio play mm -hmm. of Star Wars. Oh, what did he play? The of, at the end of every episode, it was, and Brock Peters as Darth Vader. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he, he they, uh, they did an actual radio play of, of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, uh, where it was like broken down into like 30 episodes, something mm -hmm. ridiculous. Um, but yeah, Brock Peters played Darth Vader in both of those. And then they didn't do one for Return of the Jedi, but kind of as a homage to the other two. Uh, in the 90s, they did a straight-to-CD Return of the Jedi series, mm -hmm. and okay. he came back for that too. So I, oh. I, I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, cool. So yeah, he, he's, he and James Earl Jones are, to me, the two voices of Darth Vader. I did not realize that. I did not realize that at all. But that's how I knew who he was. And then when he's when I saw his credits in Star Trek, you know, five or four, or whatever he's in, I was like, "Hey, that's Darth Vader." <laughs> that's not the first thing I said. <laughs> that's pretty good. Anyways, that's that's good background. Yeah. And what's funny about those radio plays? John Lithgow. You know who he is, right? I've heard of him. Yes. As Yoda. No way. <laughs> the uh, the the Trinity Killer played Yoda. Amazing. Exactly. And how does 
John Lithgow tie-in to Star Trek in Twilight Zone the movie. Oh! John Lithgow sees a gremlin on the plane. And he plays William Shatner. He plays William Shatner's character from the Twilight Zone. Exactly. Exactly. It all comes full circle, my friend. Yeah. And And I really enjoyed that depiction of that story. But you know what? I think the original story still holds up pretty well. I watched it not too long ago with Shatner, and I actually really enjoyed it. Well, that was more... I, I thought that was more of like a suspense kind of thing. Like, what's he going to do about it? You know, are they going to crash? You know, that kind of thing. Because right. I found the gremlin to be laughable. Well, yeah, it looks like a guy, you know... It, in, in a, a Mugatu suit. Right. <laughs> and it, I think it's the Mugatu suit before they put the horn on it. <laughs> yeah, sure, let's go with that. <laughs> well, kind of. It's not exactly, but you know what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah, so... um but I thought that the gremlin was, especially at the at the end, that mixture of of what I thought was like horror. You know, when he opens up the window and then the gremlin grabs his face, and then it's like he's gonna rip his face off, and then he lifts it off and goes ah, and then that was funny. It was like I thought that was great. Loved it. Yeah, with the with the finger, in, yeah, the index finger. Yeah. yeah, and all the stuff dripping off his hand. Yeah, That's We good. are way off in the weeds, my friend. We, we are indeed. I'd like to bring up the fact, I think, Spock's phaser, which was pulled out repeatedly on on the, the surface of Guy, I thought it was very well drawn, liked it, and uh, it was pretty cool how Spock was not afraid to use it. He never actually used uh, it. But still, exactly, but he was more than happy to uh, talk his way out of it if right. he could. I, I think that the police uh, gave up a little early if they really wanted to try to get rid of her. Uh, I mean, he couldn't... He wouldn't be able to necessarily stun all of them. I mean, unless he puts it on Y, sure which happens exactly. pretty rare. It's rare, but it, the precedent was set in the Return of the Archons. <laughs> right. So, yes, technically he could and, and set that, it to wide and knock them all out, but they don't know that. Yes, they they do not know that. But we know he can do it, especially since the Return of the Archons, they did that with Phaser Type mm-hmm. 1s. And this is a more advanced Phaser Type 2. Right, but if you look at that nozzle, I just don't see how that would just fan out like the uh, like the other one did. <laughs> <laughs> technology, my friend, technology. Yeah. Uh, I, I, obviously, they just wanted to get them off the planet, and they didn't care. Yeah, and, and Spock, Spock gave them what right. they wanted. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm gonna get her off the planet for you, buddy. That's what you want. I'm your friend. Let's go. Right. right. That's great. Well, all I was gonna say is, both the the Nara and the guy people, for the most part, are a bunch of jerks. And I wouldn't want them in the. I would not want them in the Federation. It's like you guys are a bunch of jerks. They don't really want them in the Federation. They just want their permission to drive through their parking lot. I know that, and they want a treaty, which does not mean federation. I do agree, but let's in the first episode, in the first issues, you find out that the Nara people are a bunch of jerks. They are a bunch of jerks. You ain't kidding. They're ruffians. They are. They have no problem with beating people, especially if it happens to be their quote neighbor planet horse people. Right. And then when you finally get the guy, you find out. Well, those, those horse people on Guy are just as bad. I mean, right. look what xenophobic, look what they're going to do. try to do to Tiaras. They're better off without him. Yeah, and even Dalen, who who up until this point has been a, you know, 
really close friend, he he's part of the mob. Yep. He's a wimpy dog. Yeah. He's a wimpy dog. So. Or he, wimpy he, horse. He got her to get that tattoo of the little red cross underneath her eye. Yeah. And then he's not, he's like, I don't know who she is. <laughs> Why does as she have the same tattoo as me? I don't know. It's a mystery. Kill her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I did not like that part. No. So they're they're better off leaving them. Leave yeah. them. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you go and have fun with the Rom have fun with the Romulans. Yeah. Yeah. I did like that at the end. Oh Although, yeah. you know, Admiral Cartwright is not going to be happy about it. But... Not at all. <laughs> not I, at I, all. I like that. And we don't know. That might have, you know, planted a little seed that will uh take fruit and, and they'll join or sign the treaty after all. Right. We'll never know. Exactly. Well, that's pretty much all you can really do. I mean, that's all that's all Kirk could do. I mean, he couldn't. I mean, these guys are jerks. It's hard to. It's hard to change their mind. So there you go. You gotta you gotta cut your losses and know when you lose. Right. So in regards to that scene right before they do the big gang type uh, scene. Uh, Tierras, however you pronounce her name, and Spock have their moment. This is what we were kind of alluding to earlier. Yes. Yep. So, do you think she really had feelings for him? I mean, it looked like she was trying to touch his face with the two fingers, so isn't that kind of uh, isn't isn't that kind of what the two finger thing, isn't that what um, what's her name, Savick does with, with Ponfarce, young Spock? Oh, I did not notice that. I mean, I didn't. I didn't draw that correlation. Right. And the thing is, what? I mean, they kind of cut things off. I mean, you you got the impression Spock was going to say, "Oh no, no, we little girl." Right. And I'm sure he did that. It's just that they kind of ended it quickly, didn't they? Right. So on page 17, for you guys who aren't looking at the book, so uh, Tierras reaches up to Spock's face with the two fingers and then uh, the next panel shows Spock, you know, taking her hand and then he kind of, and then the third panel shows him uh, pulling it down from his face onto like his, you know, his neck area, assuming that he's, you know, just moving her hand away from his face. Um, right. But you're right. It, it, does it, it does kind of leave it open. It does. And I didn't go into the details of this, but um, after they go to bed in separate rooms, Tiaris is having some kind of nightmare or something, and Spock comes in there in his uh, in his uh, yellow command T-shirt. <laughs> I always wanted to be a captain, and uh, and isn't that funny how he still has a blue shirt even though he's a captain? But whatever. He doesn't um, have a blue shirt. They they all wear burgundy. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. You're right. Um, but he's got a yellow T-shirt, and he's waking her up, and it's like. This is, uh, you, know, you know, dark skies. And then they continue having their discussion. And then, uh, hmm. How did Can you know they were in separate rooms? I, I just assumed they were both in the same room. Maybe I different beds, but I don't know. It doesn't I, say it. I assume they were in separate rooms. Hmm. I assume that Spock would not be the kind of guy to get one room. Well, I think they pretty much had to get whatever they could get. Probably. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, she has the bad dream about being chased, and he comforts her, gives her a good drink of water. Yeah, have a drink of water. Takes and then a they hug have, or two. And then they have a long conversation. A long conversation. 
Oh, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, it's pretty long. And it's like, okay, the guy's as old as your father. <laughs> really? Little teenage right. girl? If, if, anyway. if that fight with Kirk would have gone a little differently, he could have been your dad. That's right. It could have been. All right, my last comment on this issue is towards the end when Spock and McCoy are having their little chit-chat there at the uh, the giant steering wheel. Mm-hmm. It's the first time I ever saw anybody actually use the steering wheel, so uh, it shows McCoy give it a spin like as if it was, you know, the wheel on Wheel of Fortune. Mm-hmm. But uh, I or... never thought about it as being a prop that would actually move. move. Well, and then, I thought, then I thought, I was like, well, wouldn't that be cool if they could actually send up the controls and you could have actually steer the ship there, steering the ship? <laughs> that would be awesome. So I assume this is like facing forward, right. the wheel and everything. Yeah, maybe about where like 10 forward would be on the Enterprise D. Ah, uh-huh. gotcha. That's the way I always kind of pictured it. Right, right. And it is huge. So, I mean, McCoy is actually shorter than it. Right. Was it that big in the movies? Nobody ever actually walked up to it, did they? It wasn't a kind of always in the background. I thought Kirk might have walked up to it, but yeah, maybe um, it's it's, it's a pretty big wheel, maybe. and and who knows in really big ships, uh, you know, back in the 1600s, whatever, maybe they were that big because they had pretty big rudders they needed to turn. I don't know, but it's a big wheel, right. Anyways, I thought it I thought it was just kind of cool to see it him moved. actually give it a little spin. Yeah. And then I thought the shot of the Enterprise flying around in warp on those two pages was actually really good. Oh, especially on with the multicolors. 23 and 24. Yeah, at the very end. Yeah. Because it's very colorful, like in the movie. Rainbow warp. Rainbow warp, exactly. Which is interesting how now the new movie has yet another effect. And the warp effect now in this second movie is, I believe it's different from the warp effect in the first movie. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. So now it, like, leaves that blue trail that kind of looks like crystal, like, shimmering and Some, actually yeah. has substance after they're gone. Exactly. So it's like a contrail, but kind of crystally kind of thing. Right. It's interesting. Yep. It was also interesting in the movie hate to bring that up, but where the Enterprise broke out of warp when it was fired on from behind. So they they show it going through the warp tunnel, whatever, and um, and then getting blown to bits from behind, and then breaking out of the warp tunnel. Which, it all looked cool and stuff. It's just... I thought it was a warp bubble around the ship, and they weren't really going through a tunnel, per se, but whatever. Again, that might be the blurring of Star Wars, Star Trek. Or Babylon 5. Babylon 5 had the tunnel thing going, I think. Uh, no, I mean, I'm going to retract that. But I think there are some other franchises that did the tunnel kind of thing, in addition to Star Wars, I guess. Right. Right. Well, Star Wars definitely has the, the you know, when when it goes to warp the Enterprise, it looks just like the you know, the view screen when the Millennium Falcon goes to warp and all that stuff. Or light Where speed. The stars the stars get stretched right. as you uh huh, cool. I didn't 
I don't remember that, but yeah, you're probably right. All right. So the next one is uh, Star Trek Volume 2, issue number 69. Came out March 1995. Writer is Howard Weinstein. Penciler is Rachel Ketchum. Inker is Arnie Starr. Letterer, Bob Panaha. Colorist, Dave Graffy. And editor is Margaret Clark. This one is entitled A Wolf in Cheap Clothing, Part 1. All right, so the cover, again, has a caption, as the last couple have. And it says, Descent into Danger. All right, and it shows Kirk, Chekhov, Scotty, and a blonde man, all wearing civilian clothes. Uh, They're standing in the middle of a small town street. It may look like Kirk has some sort of black and brown streaks in his hair. Maybe that'll factor in later. And around them, we see several different types of aliens. Uh, Most of them are not paying any attention to them. So we see in the background an Andorian male. Uh, Looks like he may be serenading an Orion woman who's uh, sitting in front of a second floor window. Uh, We see a Klingon walking towards the reader. And he's looking down at the owner of a hand, which can be seen in the lower right hand part of the page. And then we see a Mohawk gentleman, uh, and he seems to be the only one that's noticing the Enterprise crew. So the story starts off with a Federation shuttlecraft landing within the Enterprise hangar bay. When the shuttle doors open, it is none other than Captain Sulu and Chief Engineer Lucas from the Excelsior. Sulu notices immediately that Scotty and Kirk are sporting new hairstyles, and they both have slight ridges on their foreheads now. It seems that Lucas and Sulu will be joining them on an away mission to a colony near the Klingon neutral zone. And they will be disguised as Nilarans. After some greetings, the crew have a discussion with Admiral Cartwright via a communicator terminal. He tells them of their mission of trying to find out what happened to some Klingon colonies in that sector of space. He closes the communication by getting really close to the camera on his side so that only his eyeball can be seen on Kirk's monitor. So someone hasn't quite figured out the webcam. So soon, Sulu and Lucas are made to look like Nilerons and Kirk, Scotty, and the two Excelsior crew members take a non-Federation shuttlecraft away from the Enterprise. Once away, Spock is left in charge, and his orders are to keep the Enterprise stationary until Kirk arrives. He and McCoy have a moment where Spock states that he should not think less of all humans just based on McCoy's shortcomings. The away team arrives to the planet and they beam down. Immediately, they witness a huge street brawl. Sulu tells Kirk that there's no police and no law here. So the fight will end when it ends, and no one will try to stop it. Just then, a clownish, blue-skinned alien arrives, and he introduces himself as the self-appointed mayor. He calls himself Lanamish. And he addresses Kirk as the small group's leader. 
He then takes them on a tour of the town. When Kirk asks for some more specific information, namely information regarding the nearby failed colonies, Lanamish requires payment for such information. Kirk has seven bags of grain beamed down from the shuttle, and Lanamish then tells him about at least three failed colonies, including one Klingon colony where the settlers were ordered to return back to the Empire. He states that many of them remain here on this planet and that they're trying to get materials in order to start up a colony of their own. The four Starfleeters leave and get confirmation of his story when they see several of the Klingons enter a nearby bar. They follow. Sulu is able to get some information out of them by perhaps offering material for their cause. The Klingon woman sets up a meeting for a later time, and she will bring a list of the materials they need. Kirk orders the four to separate and to scope out what available materials are on the planet. Lucas is able to quickly find some communication equipment. Scotty finds some engineering parts. Sulu finds clothes and chairs. And Kirk finds himself staring at the rear of a scantily clad woman. She is bent over looking at a statue of some sort. He says that he has never seen anything uglier. At first, she might be offended that he would say something like that about her backside. But he quickly states that he was only talking about the statue. They flirt for a while, and while they are talking, a small man comes and looks at the same statue. The two make fun of the small man and his clothing. He turns around and looks directly at them, perhaps understanding what they were saying, and he walks away. Kirk watches him leave, and then he turns to talk to the woman, only to find her and the statue missing. Kirk's communicator chirps, and Scotty tells him that he better come down and see what he found. Then, in a very unstart track moment, Kirk asks, what have you found? Scotty tells him that he's found a payload of weapons which seem to come from a variety of places, namely Klingons, Federation, and other groups. Kirk closes the communicator and walks away. Once he's gone, the small man reappears from behind a box, and he thinks to himself, Kirk, what the hell is he doing here? Back on the Enterprise, Spock is contacted by Admiral Chu. She informs him that a Klingon force is heading towards the planet. Spock asks if they need to rescue Kirk's party. She says no, and that Kirk should be resourceful enough to get himself out of the situation. When the communication is complete, McCoy is stunned that Starfleet is counting Kirk as expendable. Spock assures the Doctor that they do not think that Kirk is expendable, and that they will have to wait and see what happens. As we will because the story is to be continued. Mm-hmm. Cliffhangery. A, a kind of a, a weak bit. cliffhanger, in that we don't even see yeah. the Force leaving or anything like that. It's all talking heads. Right. Right. So, again, a lot of setup. And who is that mysterious little guy that looks like he dropped out of a Superman comic? <laughs> you think he looks like Mr. Mitzelpidlick? Uh, maybe. Maybe that's what I was thinking. Very, very clownish looking yeah, speaking outfit. Speaking of clownish, what about the self-appointed mayor? 
Oh my goodness. Oh, that, that was, was weird. Bad. That was weird. That's a weird looking alien. <laughs> yeah, so just for you guys not not uh looking at the book. So the mayor is a blue skinned alien with kind of longish ears, but not not Spock ears, but kind of almost dog like ears because it looks like sometimes they kind of fold over. And he has like a like a large squished in nose and little tiny teeth and yeah, but they look like they're sharp. They're almost like right. gremlin teeth. Kind of like puppy teeth, if you've ever had a puppy. <laughs> and yeah. he has, like, little maybe suckers on his fingertips. I don't know. They're bulbous at the end. He, he's, he, he's got weird yeah. fingers. Weird, long, flexible fingers. And then he's wearing this blue overcoat over maybe, like, a yellowish dress-looking thing. <laughs> uh, and a big medallion a big golden medallion hanging off of a red uh ribbon it it's a ridiculous outfit yeah and i didn't go over the tour but it's ridiculous you're like oh well here's some food you can have oh here's some other stuff you can do and i've never had it myself but here's great i mean it's like mm-hmm. it was like three pages of well, this this doesn't add anything to the story no no, but in the end, he ends up being a source of information, apparently. Right. So he ends up being, he ends up being uh, an informant to them, to them, to them being kind of like investigative cops. <laughs> so they're paying the informant for information, who originally claimed to be the self-appointed mayor. So this is quite a lawless place. Right. If you can just declare yourself mayor, I don't want to visit that place. No. No. You definitely would want to be armed. Right. Yes. So, three sets of eyebrows and streaky hair. That that makes Kirk an, an alien. <laughs> yeah. That's not a that's not a real alien, right? It's not not one that I'm familiar with. Well, I've never heard of them before, but they're trying to say they are. Right. So, obviously, you know, change the hair and put three sets of eyebrows on them and automatically well they can't be from the federation they're not human huh no (laughs) anyway yeah not the biggest fan of that look no but you know at least they try to do something it's the streaky hair that gets me you know I gotta be honest with you the first time through reading this I didn't even notice the streaky hair oh really I just noticed those weird weird eyebrows I'll be honest, I didn't notice the eyebrows until my second go through it. <laughs> but you noticed the streaky hair. I noticed on the streaky hair, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Well, yeah. Funny about that. So what do you think about yeah. this issue overall? I, I didn't really like it. Well, I, I just thought it was kind of throwaway. Right. I mean, there wasn't... Um, there really wasn't anything overly interesting about it. I mean... There's some artificial menace to the landing party, but mm, yay. Um, I thought it was kind of, I thought it was odd that they had two captains, which is like, well, would you really want to ex- take a chance with two captains? And oh, what the heck? Let's send their engineers with them. Right. It's like, what an interesting choice. Couldn't you send the doctors too? I mean, let's just make it a a. a s- a party of six. 
A party of six. Hey, how about some more people that aren't really qualified to do this, but you're going to send anyway? I, I did like that they at least tried to uh, yeah, explain, explain why Lucas was there, because he was part of one of the original um, surveys of that planet. Yeah, And Sulu. Right. So, he'd been, so, so they, they explained why they came into the story, but no one ever really explained why Kirk and Scotty were going. It's like, because this is Star Trek, the original series, not Star Trek Excelsior. Come on, Ken. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay, fine. But still, <laughs> it was kind of weird. No, I agree. I mean, I, I thought the uh, selection of the away team was kind of interesting. That's fine. You don't get to see... Yeah, you, you like to see Scotty get out of the ship once in a while and stretch his legs. Right. Because he does need a little exercise. And I did think it... I thought it was really bad when they when they split up the four of them, and they're all yeah. to go find something, and Lucas finds communications equipment. Okay, well, that makes sense. And then Scotty finds, uh, you know, enough junk to make an engine out of. Okay, well, that's because he's the miracle worker, of course. And then it shows Sulu, I guess, at a mall or something, and he's like, ooh, stuff to sit on. And he's looking at a rack of coats. So I don't really... <laughs> I kind of wonder if maybe the wrong words were put in there because he's not looking at stuff to sit on. He's looking at stuff to wear. Yeah. Oh, no. He says stuff to sit on, stuff to wear. What don't they have? So I guess. All right. Okay. Whatever. And and I'm sorry if I missed this, but why were they going to find all those things? I'm assuming they were trying to scout out what was there to maybe figure out what, what the Klingons might want later. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, because they are posing as merchants that may have things that a colony would need. Right. But so they're going to procure some of these items and make it to to, to go along with their cover story. Well, see, and that's that just it. Because if if they're buying it off of somebody that's already on the planet, wouldn't the Klingons already know that you know? Oh, uh, this you know, Smith and Brothers over at the end of the street has these pants I want. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, just I, I didn't really it's understand. It's a little thin. I mean, yeah. And then what? What Kirk is doing in a, you know, antique shop, except for hitting on that woman. Exactly. I don't know what he's looking for. Oh, I know what he's looking for. <laughs> Did you not think that was weird? Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course. And when I first read What's it, and, I, and and you know, because it just it shows a panel on that page. Uh, what page is that? 18. There's four panels on the page. One is Lucas, one is Scotty, one is Sulu, and then the fourth one is this woman with her back to us, with her, you know, she's kind of bent over a little bit. Yeah. And I, and I read that, and I'm like, oh, there's a fifth person on the away team? You know, I thought, well, maybe it was, you know, some random crew crew woman. And then, so I actually had to flip back the book a little bit to make sure that there wasn't a fifth person uh, on the away team, and then I read it, and I'm like, oh, no, it's just the lady that Kirk is going to hit on. Yeah, but don't you think it was kind of like a set up as like a little bit of a joke? Yeah, that's the ugliest so thing the, I've ever seen. The other seen. three guys. Well, <laughs> well, that that no, not that as much. But uh, you know, the two engineers find parts to make things with. Um, uh, the, the the captain finds uh, a chair to sit in, and ooh, clothing. So okay, so we know. And then at the end. We've got we've got Kirk hitting on a woman. Right. I, I just thought that was I thought maybe they were trying to get some humor going there. Well. You know, the the old horn dogger Kirk. 
Yeah, well, they definitely play that up on the next, like, four pages. Yeah. Yeah, he is trying to work the, uh, the Kirk mojo. And then when that poor guy comes to look at the statue, they just sit there and bust on him. Oh, he's he's really ugly dude. Oh, look at his clothes. They're so horrible. It's just like... He's funny looking. I was kind of taken aback a little bit that, that uh, you know, Kirk would just be making fun of some poor guy for his yeah. choice of clothes. Don't they even say, oh, I guess he probably couldn't afford anymore, or he must think that looks nice on his planet or something. It's just really out of character for them. Yeah. And then when he looks at him like, I heard every word you said. It's like, oh, I'm a little embarrassed for them. Yeah, I wasn't embarrassed for him. I, I, I kind of wanted him to give them both a good kick in the shins. <laughs> right in the shins, because that's all he could reach. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way, but... Oh, yes, you did. What's wrong with short but people? I think it's funny that, they, that they're surprised that he can hear them, because they're standing, like, right away. next to them. Exactly. <laughs> oh, you heard us talk bad about you? You have a universal translator, too? Whoops. So, I noticed that uh, Lucas who had blonde eyebrows in the opening pages of the book, has brown eyebrows once he is on the planet with so his disguise. Are those three eyebrows, or are they ridges? Because I thought they were just think, ridges, I like think, Klingon ridges kind of thing. No, I, I think they're eyebrows. I, and isn't it funny how Kirk doesn't have them during the upper right-hand panel of page 19? Oh. I mean, like, like, like maybe there's one thin one there, but for the most part, they're gone. Oh. Were you talking to? Yeah, her? I see it. I was referring to the statue. Yeah, I see it. And by the way, did you notice my most of my extra eyebrows are gone? I still think it's ridges and not eyebrows. I don't know. You're right. Because on page well, no, seventeen, look close. it looks like eyebrows. Yeah. That looks like hair. Yeah. Wow. But I must say, uh, I I'm sure you're happy about this, but you will notice that uh, Sulu's back in the cape. Yes, I loved it. The short cape. Yes, the Star Trek 4 cape. Uh, loved it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Loved the cape. Isn't that great? <laughs> and, of course, that's exactly the outfit he has when he was on Big Bang. That's just so cool. <laughs> right. In the in the dream? Yes. Howard's dream. Yes. <laughs> and then, uh, speaking of you know people being off, off character, uh, Kirk when they're meeting with the Klingons, it's just insulting the Klingons. Everything he can say is insulting. Oh, right. And then, you know, Sulu's, right. you know, trying to wheel and deal. Mm-hmm. And then when they walk out, Sulu's like, hey, good job, you know, insulting them like that so that they, you know, didn't think something, you know, to keep the cover. And he's like, right. who was acting? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I know that he, you know, hates the Klingons in Star Trek V, but I just... I never saw him just be a jerk like that. He's just a jerk through this whole book, really. Yeah, I guess he is. Now that you mention it. So did you get the same weird webcam thing with Admiral Cartwright when they were closing off communication? <laughs> I like the joke. They're on page five. I mean, why why is he zooming in on his eyeball? I don't know. <laughs> and, he, and he's kind of like, like on, an, on an angle. Right. Like he's like, hey, Kirk, what's that behind you? What's... Yeah, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Oh, man. Yeah, so... I don't know why he would do that. It doesn't make sense. But why... uh, So obviously somebody drew it that way. So, I mean, what were they... Were they wanting to emphasize that he's... 
you know, leaning in and saying, Kirk, you better listen to me, or... Or was he getting up to to leave or something? I don't know. I, I don't know what the explanation is. Is he trying to look to see what Kirk's writing? You know, are y'all playing tic-tac-toe? I, <laughs> it better not be about me. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, it's funny. And people that do not have the book have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> but if you can see it, it's very odd. It really looks like odd. when you're on a, a video cam over you know the internet and someone yeah. leans close to the the webcam yep that's what it looks like now i will say on the top of the previous page he's kind of close to the monitor also or the camera right but nothing i mean it's like at least double as close in uh, <laughs> uh on that next page so maybe Very kirk's odd. just zo- zooming in just, just he's just playing you know, with he, it everybody else he's is just watching. playing with the zoom control that's really all I have to say about this one. I have one more comment, and it's kind of okay. overarching these three issues. They mm-hmm. have a lot of advertisements for Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions. Oh, yeah. Which was obviously coming out here in uh, the summer of 94. Right. Um, it's just kind of cool. I mean, the movie was horrible and, and did horrible at the box office, but Captain Archer right there. I was really excited about this movie when it came out. I didn't even know he was in it. Yeah, he's starring Michael Crawford. Right. What? What are you looking at? I'm looking at the Lord of Illusions, entering the van. Oh, okay. Enter the vanishing to Vegas sweepstakes. Oh, that's the magician. When a trip for two to Vegas, so that Michael Crawford was a magician. Right. right? But the movie stars Scott Bakula. Oh. Hmm. I didn't remember. I think that. they had some other posters in in other issues, but this one had the the sweepstakes advertisement. Yeah. So one of the one of those movies that he did post Quantum Leap? Uh, it might be during Quantum Leap. During Quantum Leap. Right. So if you okay. go to the back cover, you can see a better advertisement for it. Okay. I'm jumping to the end. Prepare for the coming Clyde Barker's Lord uh, of Illusions. Oh, right. Okay, so you can see a name there, but you know that, that person's face, you can't tell who that is. Okay. Anyways. There it is. Scott Bakula, look. Captain. Oh, Framke Jansen was in it? Yes. Oh. Gene oh, Gray. Okay. And when she was apparently quite young. Nice. Right. Well, that's about when... She's, she's, she's a very attractive lady. It's about when Goldeneye came out, right? So it's around that time she was in that mm-hmm. too. Yeah, and she was pretty hot in Goldeneye, which is the first time I ever saw her. Right. All right. So we done with the issue? I think we are. All right. So uh, let's jump into the expanded universe. We're in a brand new year, 1995. Uh, January, there was a Next Generation novel entitled Balance of Power by Defad Ab Hugh. Probably mispronounced that, I'm sure. Uh, but this one is uh, one of their numbered ones, so it was a paperback. It was uh, Cadet Wesley Crusher leaves the Academy, ends up getting kidnapped by some Ferengi. And then this leaves Picard to not only save Wesley... But he also is investigating a potential new weapon, the Proton Pulse Cannon. Bum, bum, bum. That sounds deadly. The right. Proton Pulse Cannon. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to be deadly and show up many, many times in other episodes. Not. <laughs> All right. So February, uh, there was a Deep Space Nine novel called Proud Helios by Melissa Scott. And this is a, uh, there's a mysterious cloaked ship attacking 
and raiding ships uh, in and around the wormhole. Goldicott and Cisco have to team up to stop the uh, pirate. Mm. Uh, the cover has a giant bird of prey on it, so either that's a huge spoiler or <laughs> they just put a stock photo of uh, oh, a cloak ship. Must be a Klingon. Put it in there. Mm. <laughs> Alright, also that month there was a, a Next Generation young adult novel uh, entitled Mystery of the Missing Crew by Michael Jan Friedman and this is the one that I was I talked about earlier uh, it's Data's story about how he was activated and joining Starfleet Academy with, with all the other uh, humans and other aliens hmm. and I didn't be, quite buy that, that he would be there the same time as like young Geordi and things like that but no that's that's BS right because he was there a lot, lot before those you guys you would think so right yeah. Now I, I'll be honest. I haven't read this one, but I read some of the other young adult ones, and I could never quite buy the timing. But this one's written by Michael Jan Friedman, so maybe maybe they, you know, paid a little more attention to continuity. Hmm. All right. Well, and, not in that area. Well, I, like I said, I don't know if Jordy's in that one. All all it said was Data's being activated and joining. Oh. Okay, well, that, that and, sounds fine. And then he's on an adventure. But I've read other young adult Next Generation, and, and Jordy, Worf, and Data are all in the Academy at the same time. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But that was a different book to give to give them credit. There you go. All right, so in February, uh, there was also the novelization of Star Trek Voyager Caretaker by L.A. Graff. Uh, I won't go into what that one's about, since you should probably already know. Uh, March, there was the fourth book and maybe the last book of the original series, The Lost Years, by J.M. Dillard. Uh, the Lost Years is a um, pre-motion picture series of books. Uh, this particular one deals with McCoy being aboard the new ship USS Recovery, and uh, he gets in some, some, some trouble and needs saving by Admiral Kirk. Uh, actually, I didn't know there was a fourth book until today. I thought there was only the first three. So huh. I'll have to look that one up because that that, uh, that last year series is actually pretty good. All right. Also, there was a Next Generation novel, uh, Blaze of Glory by Simon Hawk. Just real quick, the, uh, the cover of this one is interesting because it shows Picard and Data in their normal Next Generation uniforms. And then the rest of the cover shows an old Constitution-class ship. So it looks like the old Enterprise. So that one might be interesting just to find out why there's such an old ship flying around. Hmm. And then lastly, there is a Deep Space Nine novel called Warped by K.W. Jeter. And in the 90s, I tried multiple times to read this book, and I have never finished it. Just didn't hold your interest? It didn't. I was just like, maybe because, you know, Deep Space Nine was still fairly new and I wasn't quite as into it as I was Next Generation. Mm-hmm. So I kept reading, you know, I would start it and put it down and then I'm like, oh, I'd really want to finish that book. And then I would start it and put it down and, you know, that was 20 years ago. So I kind of <laughs> doubt I'm going to go back. If- I, yeah. I'm kind of curious. I might go pull it off the shelf here in a minute just to see if my bookmark's still in there. <laughs> uh, the 20-year-old bookmark. 
you might find yourself interested. You never know. <laughs> All right. So that wraps up this episode. Uh, next episode, we are doing same issues, uh, issue numbers, but next generation. DC Comics, 67 through 69. Cool. Yeah, should be good. Okay, looking forward to it, man. All right, so until then, hope everybody enjoyed the show, and we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Later, everybody. See you next time on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.